Welcome to WVU's Climate Conversations podcast. These episodes are student projects from the Fall 2019 Honors Book Club under the same title. My name is Katherine Williamson. I'm a teaching professor of physics and astronomy, and this book club was inspired by a TED Talk by climate scientist Katherine Hayhoe. She says that the most important thing you can do to fight climate change is to talk about it. Therefore, the aim of each Climate Conversation episode is to do just that, to talk about an aspect of climate change and to keep the conversation going. My name is Cassie Hoffman, and I'm a freshman. My major is biochemistry, and this is my guest, Katie. Hi, my name is Katie Dace, and I'm a wildlife and fisheries major here at WVU with a minor in conservation, and I recently got back to the United States from doing a research project in Patagonia. What place specifically in Patagonia, like Chile, Argentina? Yeah, so I can give a little bit of background on what Patagonia is, just so that everybody understands. So Patagonia obviously is a clothing brand, but more than that, it's a region in the southern part of um, South America, and it splits between Argentina and Chile. On the Argentine side, it's primarily composed of steppe, which is like an arid grassland sort of thing. It's really flat, and there's like these animals called wanacos. They're like like llamas, kind of, <laughs> and armadillos and things like that. And then on the Chilean side, it's primarily fjords, Valdivian rainforest, um, and mountains. So what that looks like is a lot of rain. There's a lot of glaciers, this stuff called mesophytic scrub, which is high alpine terrain. And throughout that region, you might find things like orca whales, a type of endangered deer called waymul, lots of different frogs and cats like pumas and things like that. And while I was in Patagonia, I was primarily in the Aysén region of Chile, which is the, like the middle and northern part of Chilean Patagonia. And there we were doing various research projects on wildlife conservation, uh, resource conservation, and community connections. So how many times have you been there? So I've actually been to Patagonia three times. My first time in Patagonia was with Adventure West Virginia, which is a company here at WVU. It was a winter break trip, and it was totally for recreation. But when I went there, I fell in love with it and knew that I had to go back. Since then, I've been back two times, once for just a personal trip to be with friends, go backpacking and things. And then the most recent time, I was there for about seven months doing research with a group called Round River Conservation Studies. It's an NGO based in Utah, but they have programs all over the world where they do grassroots community, grassroots conservation things with local park service and local community members. Would you recommend other students to go and learn about the environment and climate change? Absolutely. I think that climate change is something that affects everyone no matter what you plan to do in life, whether you are in business or you are in natural resource conservation or journalism or what have you. It's not something that is exclusive to any person or group. It affects everybody in different ways. While you were there, did it affect you personally? Like, could you see it affecting the community? Yeah, definitely. So while I was there, there's actually this huge forest fire that almost caused us to evacuate, which is really not characteristic of the region. There are places in the world where Fire regime is totally normal in the environment. Um, For instance, in the western part of the United States, regular forest fires are actually good for the forest. But down in Patagonia, where I was staying, forest fires are totally uncommon and actually destroyed a huge part of of the area where I was living in a town called Cochrane, which is right next to the new Patagonia National Park that was just established this last year. So you would say that it's important there and it's urgent climate change. 
much. Yeah, I think that Patagonia is one of the regions where climate change is currently affecting communities and wildlife populations like in this very moment. Not only through things like fires, but also this thing called a, a GLOF, which is a glacial lake outburst flood. Basically, what that is, is behind a glacier, um, over time, it melts and it creates this big lake, right? So as the glacier melts at the bottom, it can cause the reservoir behind it to blow it out and flood the valley below. And particularly, these are becoming more and more frequent, and it really affects rural communities because those are the people who live out close to the glaciers and have the sheep farms and things like that. Those are also the people who don't necessarily have connection with the rest of the community, the local towns and things. So there's no way for them to evacuate or even know that a flood is coming. I think back in like mid-2000, like 2006, 2007, they actually uh, had a program where they gave a bunch of rural community people um, solar panels and and radios. And so they started to be able to communicate with each other. They could see as the river was rising, they could communicate to the next farm over like hey the river's rising i think that there's this big flood coming protect your animals get your family out of there and that's pretty much been the system that's been in place since then and yeah it's working for now but it's not it's not a long-term solution so we have to keep being creative and keep trying to find new solutions to this problem would you say that in other rural communities around the world that lack of technology has an effect on it too for them since they can't be like told in ahead of time. Yeah, I think that that is definitely a fair point. One thing that is kind of interesting though is there's a weird gap of technology. <laughs> so for instance, while I was there, I actually had the opportunity to live on a campo, which is just a, the name for a farm um, out in the Baker, the Rio Baker community. And my host mother actually had an iPhone, but we didn't have enough electricity to have a refrigerator. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a weird kind of uh, disparity, bad. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not exactly sure how technology or, like, the availability of technology will affect climate change in rural communities. I think it depends on how we allocate what technology we do have to the at most at-risk areas. While you were there, did you participate? Like you said, you did research. Were there any protests or things like that? While I was there, there weren't any protests, even though the region is actually well known for having one of the largest uh, environmental protests, most successful and largest environmental protests like in history, when they defended the Rio Baker, Rio Neff, and Rio Pasqua against a hydroelectric company that was going to dam these rivers. Um, that was also like in the early 2000s. But while I was there, I was able to participate in a program that was meant to empower women in the local, um, some local rural communities by bringing them to their local glaciers for the very first time. So the way that I was able to help participate in this was helping create the curriculum for an experiential education program for them. So it was just a one-day trip for women to go out on a, on a boat, essentially, through the fjords and see the glacier for the first time. And then while they were there, they would talk about, you know, what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a mother and how both of those things relate to conservation and the protection of their families and their planet. I felt extremely fortunate to be able to participate in that because it wasn't part of our normal coursework or anything. It was just an opportunity that came up and they asked me to help because I have some experience in experiential education. This is Catherine. Can I jump in maybe? 
Cassie was interested in this ability of students to study abroad and see these different places around the world because, you know, we don't have glaciers in West Virginia. (laughs) And, you know, just you talking about the glacier makes me think to when I studied abroad in New Zealand as a college student. And that was also when I was first learning about climate change. And they showed, as part of our curriculum, pictures of the glacier in the previous decades and, you know, what it looks like now. Yeah. And it was so shockingly different. And, I mean, I had never seen a glacier at all before then. Is that part of, you know, the sort of experience that you saw as well? There's Is there a historical record of this is what it used to look like, this is what it looks like now? Yeah. So, actually, one of my professors while I was there, his name's Adam Spencer, and he unlike our other professors, it was a journalism major. And his whole thing is in, his whole like uh, expertise is in filmmaking and journalism. And he actually has some books and some videos that are all about glaciers and how they recede and over the years, how that's affected them. I think he has a time lapse from a couple of years of one of the glaciers that we actually studied, which was, I think, the Jorge Mont Glacier in the northern part of the southern Patagonia ice field. <laughs> and it's incredible how much it's receded just in his time as being a teacher with the program I was with. I believe it was about four years. And it's amazing. It receded, I think, like 500 meters. In four in, years? In that amount of time, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was wild. It's really, really wild. So maybe, Cassie, you could talk a little bit about your background, like how you, why you reached out to the study abroad office in, in the first place, because we're getting this perspective that we really can't get from West Virginia. So I reached out and I got a response saying that they would send out a mass email with my personal information. And I got a lot of responses really quickly. Um, but yours stuck out the most because you had, you went like deeper, like thought <laughs> explanation. And at the end of the email, you said that you commend me for um, choosing such a bold topic. And I thought that was really important because it showed that you thought that way too. In the book Renewable, it's by Aline Flanagan. And throughout her book, she talks about her experience in the Peace Corps in Botswana in Africa. And through her experience, she throwed her insight on what she saw, how the climate change was affecting communities, um, and how it affected it was food scarcity and changing weather patterns. But from your experience in Patagonia, you said that it was through the ice fields. So maybe like, why are the ice fields important? Right. Uh, you know, why do we even, who cares if the glaciers are receding? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Right. I think we should, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... In Patagonia, there's a northern and southern ice field. The northern ice field is is fairly small in comparison to the southern Patagonia ice field, which I believe is the largest source of fresh water, inland fresh water in the world. And this is an extremely valuable resource, so much so that Chile and Argentina are constantly fighting over where the border actually is. Hmm. Um, they have park rangers out on the southern Patagonia ice field and pretty much their entire job is to just like stake their claim and be like, this is ours, this belongs to us. So we see how valuable fresh water is, especially with climate change and um, water scarcity becoming a more real problem, even in developed countries. So as this fresh water source is being affected by climate change by melting at an increasingly rapid pace, we see this incredible resource being lost underneath our feet. And Another thing that's happening simultaneously in Patagonia is, I think, because of 
the brand and because of globalization, tourism has increased exponentially in this region. Mm -hmm. And with that, specifically glacial tourism has been an incredibly booming industry in Patagonia and in all, all over the world, anywhere the, there's glaciers. And, and in a place where, where tourism is increasing so quickly, there aren't very many rules in place to regulate it. So one thing that's an issue, for example, is actually removing waste from people who are going onto the ice fields. The guides aren't necessarily trained to deal with that or required to deal with that. Same with the park rangers. So one thing that we actually have some insight on is their, their forest service is called CONOF. So I'll just, it's an abbreviation, but I'll just call it that. And right now their, their program on the ice field has to do with building domes I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of, like, the weird, like, circular... Like little golf ball shapes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. those little <laughs> golf ball buildings that they put out on the ice field, and that's, like, their base camp. And so they'll bring tourists out there, they'll bring researchers out there, whatever. And so at this big planning meeting where all the Konoff rangers were going to talk about their plans, they called this program sustainable because every year the really high-intensity winds blow the domes down and they build a new one the next year. So it's sustainable because they're sustaining this ongoing construction. <laughs> so <laughs> this just like goes to show that it seems that the, the government isn't necessarily ready to deal with all of this uh, increasing tourism in combination with the real threat of this place being lost, you know, within our future. Do you think they would should more regulations or to try to like protect the glaciers? Yeah, so it's... It's controversial because Konoff is their forest service, which just like our forest service is primarily concerned with the timber industry. But they, in, unlike our system where the National Park Service regulates our national parks, Konoff also regulates their national parks. So they kind of have conflicting goals. You know, their mission is primarily timber and also to take care of all protected areas. So when you really think about it, it's kind of hard to do both. So right now, and I'm pretty sure in, well, there's some interesting things happening in Chile right now with pro-democracy protests, but one thing that has been moving forward in their Congress within the last year has been the proposal to create a new National Park Service that's separate from CONOF and has the primary goal of resource conservation and managing the parks, which personally I think is a good thing, but it would be a huge transition of power. This is Catherine. Do you think glaciers are going to exist after, I don't know, a certain number of decades? <laughs> I mean, do you, do you think we can save some of the glaciers, I guess? Or, or do you think that all the tourists scrambling to see the glaciers right now, kind of like, yeah, see it while you can? I mean, what's your perspective on that? Well, my perspective on all conservation in general is that we do what we do for humans, for the benefit of humans, because whether we're here or not, life will persist on Earth. Mm-hmm. So do I think there will be glaciers in the future? It depends on how far in the future we're talking. But I think that what really matters is if it's important for humans to have glaciers, then we should do something about it. What about habitats and animals? Do you think that glaciers, do they need the glaciers? Would it matter if they were gone for them? Right. So something... Well, with my major, I've actually had the opportunity to travel quite a bit to study conservation. And besides being in Patagonia, which is, you know, characterized as this like really rugged, cold, high wind, extremely variable conditions. I've also had the opportunity to go to both Peru 
in like the Amazon region of Peru and in Costa Rica to the Monteverde forest, uh, rainforest. And some things that we're finding out there about habitat is that uh, habitat in relation to climate change is that climate change is making everything really variable. So the reason that there is this explosion of biodiversity in the tropic region is because of this consistency of precipitation, this consistency of temperature from day to day and year to year. It's pretty much always the same. Well, with climate change making these things more variable, these animals that are really, really adapted to this consistency can't persist at all. So one example, a classic example, is the golden toad, um, which anyone studying conservation would be like, oh, yeah. I haven't heard of the golden toad. toad, So tell me. (laughs) Okay, so this happened between the years of 1989 and 1988. I guess. Yeah, 1988, 1989. And within that amount of time, this toad, which is just like this yellow toad, declined by greater than 99% of its population. So it basically disappeared within a year. And the crazy thing is that there weren't very many human influences on this animal before its disappearance. Like most of its habitat was relatively untouched by people. There was some um, pet trade involved with it, but scientists were like, this is not enough for an entire species to go extinct like this. And what they found was that year there was actually a drought that I think there were like six days where there was no rain. And within that six days, they hypothesized that that was enough for that entire species to go extinct. Oh my gosh. Right. Right. And so that was back in the late 80s. And today we're seeing more interesting trends with birds also being affected by climate change, but in altitudinal differences. So in mountainous regions of the tropics and potentially also mountainous regions here in in West Virginia and anywhere in the world, birds that usually stay at certain altitudes are actually going higher because it's colder there, you know? So they're staying with the temperatures that are within their life history requirements and actually migrating into the habitats of other species of birds, you know, and kind of driving them out. Mm -hmm. So they are adapting, but in a way that's causing different types of competition between species that has not been seen before other things other things like mammals different squirrels and things in costa rica are actually becoming more diversified because of this unlike birds and amphibians which is kind of weird mm-hmm. there this competition is actually leading to more diverse speciation and things like that which is kind of interesting mm-hmm. do you think the v students should study abroad to see these this climate change and different cultures and how they deal with it and so on Yeah, definitely. I think that WVU students and anyone should get out of the culture and the place that they know just to see different perspectives. There's this long history of the Westerners going to different places and telling people how they should live their lives and do whatever. And that's just not sustainable. That's just not going to provide the conservation answers that we need. For example, when I was in Peru, I was volunteering on a restoration project that was actually in a native people's reservation. And so I was living with an indigenous group and, you know, working with them to try to restore the area around their community. And we were talking to some people, we were picking up trash along the river and some people came up and started to ask us why we were doing that. And we were like, well, you know, if trash floats down river, it's going to affect another community. And you see how it is here. So like, you wouldn't want it there, would you? And they were like, well, isn't that what you do? You're from the United States. (laughs) I was like, touche. That's fair. Fair (laughs) point. So I think that if you want to do something about conservation, it's, it's equally as important to know 
the people and to know the cultures that you want to influence as it is to know the science behind it. I had a class here with Amy Welsh. It's called um, Conservation Ecology. I think it's open to anyone. You don't have to be a wildlife student to take it. But every year they have uh, somebody come in and give a guest lecture about international conservation. And the year that I took it, this uh, grad student came in and she was telling us about her work in the Philippines. And what she did when she was there was helped write a children's book and give it to every child in the community. And for a lot of those families, it was the first book that they had ever had. Hmm. And prior to her doing that, they were kind of like cautious around her. They didn't know what she wanted, like why she was surveying their land, like what was going on. And then after that, the whole tone changed because it's like, well, if I care about you, then I care about what you care about, you know. And so I think any of us who want to do something on a on a broad scale or globally or with conservation or or any field that affects more than just the people directly around you, you kind of have to go abroad. (laughs) You kind of have to meet those people and care about them, and they have to care about you for anything to work. Sometimes I think there's sort of this tension, you know, because we have to fly to Mm -hmm. a lot of these places, um, which hurts the environment. And, And, you know, even the scientists on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they convene at a location around the world, and, you know, they try not to do it too often, but so how do you manage that of like the need to really see for, you know, to see what's going on around the world and to understand climate change's impact, not just at home, um, while also managing your carbon footprint? How do we do that? And I know that, I mean, maybe that's the beyond, beyond <laughs> the scope of this podcast, but it's something I, I've been thinking about. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I think that when you plan a trip, making it intentional the whole time can help. So if you are going abroad, you know, don't just make it to go do touristic things, you know, necessarily. Like, just go to take the picture at the top of the mountain and then go home and call it a day. Like, if you if you want to go abroad and you really genuinely care about these issues and care about the people and the animals and the environment, then, you know, making every moment of that intentional and for education and for for understanding, I think that it's worth it. That being said, you also don't have to go far from home to see the effects of these things. You know, West Virginia and just the Appalachian Mountain region in general has, I think, the highest salamander diversity in the entire world. (laughs) You know, and amphibians are something that we consider an indicator species and that when things start to happen to them, it's an indication that there's something different in the environment there's a pollutant or there's a temperature change or just something's going on so you know patagonia is like this place that a lot of people think of as this like fantastical destination for like climbers and for environmentalists and for all of these things but you know west virginia is too Mm -hmm. you know and also i think it's kind of dangerous to view those places in a romantic sort of way because that when you get into that thinking, you forget that there's real people there and that their lives really do depend on those resources. You know, they're, they aren't just going to climb to the mountain and take a selfie and call a day. No, they have to go to work just like the rest of us. And they drive cars and they, you know, go to Starbucks sometimes. <laughs> like they, they do those things too. So I do think it's important to get a global perspective. and But I do think it's also important to see how global it is in your backyard as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, 
I guess we kind of started this as like, oh, students should study abroad. And, you know, it sounds like that can give you a base, Mm -hmm. um, a perspective. And then it's kind of like what you use, what you do with that. Mm -hmm. How can you bring that home? How can you look around you and definitely and use what's around you? Yeah, I think, I mean, just like any other type of experiential education, studying abroad is what you make of it. Mm -hmm. Just like any type of education, it's all what you put into it and what you want to get out of it. But that being said, (laughs) as well, (laughs) there's just some things that you can't understand until you talk to the people who are living through that. Mm -hmm. So I know it's really hard to know what your passion is prior to doing something. I would say just do it if it feels right. (laughs) Um, But I think going to a place with a specific intention can also help reduce the like waste involved with it. So, for example, like I have returned to Patagonia multiple times because I know that I care about that place. The first time I went, I didn't really know. But after that, I decided to to focus on it and stay for longer periods of time to reduce my carbon footprint and not have so many flights. And really, with that, I've been able to... I, I wouldn't say that I understand the culture or that anything close to that, but it's deepened my understanding more than just that original winter break trip would have been. It's about commitment. (laughs) (laughs) So do you feel as though you can balance like your carbon footprint, but then you're going and helping and making a difference? I think I can rationalize it that way for (laughs) sure. Yeah, it's tough. Every time I fly, I do buy back my carbon What's it called? Do you know your emissions? About? Yeah, you can buy it back mm-hmm. with a lot of flights to let you do that, and it's not usually very expensive. I don't know how accurate it is. <laughs> I think when I went to Costa Rica, it was like fourteen dollars, and when I went to Peru, it was like thirty dollars. So I, I kind of feel like that's not. I mean, it would only work if like everybody on the flight also bought back their carbon <laughs> footprint. So I do things like that, and then in my day to day life, I, I try my best, or what I hope is my best, to reduce my carbon footprint and by walking um, and using public transportation and then just by by studying things like this and, and trying to get the information out there and inspire other people to do the same. Yeah, a lot of our book club conversations really came back to, you know, what can we do? Personal action. And that was what that book Renewable is really about. It's how do you make decisions in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I think one thing that's pretty it's like a pretty bad thing actually in science and the, the world of conservation is how dark it is a lot of the time. For example, in, in a lot of my classes, the the final lecture before exams is like, and here's the Anthropocene and <laughs> these are all the terrible things we're doing. Have a great finals week and have some happy holidays, everyone. And, and everyone's just really depressed and we're like, how do we, how do we even go on? Like, why are we even doing this if this is how bad it really is? But the reality is that we need to continue having hope and think about how good it could be, not how bad it is, and inspiring other people to to think the same way. Yeah, for the media, it's definitely not like as sexy to put that as your headline. Like, oh, Costa Rica is now 98% renewable energy. Everyone's like, I'd rather hear about the crazy thing that's happening with whatever random celebrity, you know, because it's more interesting. I actually, I read a, an article the other day that a, a friend shared with me that says why we do that, like why we care more about the terrible things on the news. And it's actually a, like a survival response. It's an instinctual thing because we want to care. We want to put more attention on the dangerous thing for survival than the good thing. 
you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that, like, in today's world the media uses our instincts against us um, (laughs) by bringing us down and making us think about how bad it is and all of these terrible things but what we really need to do is is spread the message that like no we can do better and it starts with you and it starts with all of us in my right now I work at the outdoor rec center and I work for adventure west virginia and I I lead trips and backcountry trips and things like that but what I really love to lead are the service trips I like to take people out to do like trail work and things like that and I like to end those activities with a little debrief and I like to tie it all back to every day we are constantly bombarded with like these heavy things you know how bad the world is whatever and when you get outside you have the opportunity to kind of let all of that go and just be present with the people around you and in the environment around you and to see a difference that you make, you know, when you're trail building at the end of the day, you see a beautiful trail that's somewhere where you, it, what, there wasn't one before. And people will enjoy that for years to come from all walks of life. And at the same time, people are walking by watching you do that work and like, hopefully they'll be inspired too. So there's a, a saying that's many hands make light work. And I think that that's true. And I think just by acting and doing simple things, even if you don't think that it's going to affect other people it definitely does i think that it always does thank you for coming it was very inspiring (laughs) to hear all your experiences and about climate change (laughs) (laughs) thank you for having me i really enjoyed it